Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. Well, good evening. We are in session 16 of our year's walk through the Bible, and we're taking a look at uh, the beginning of the book of 2 Kings, talking about the, the ministry of the prophets, most of the prophetic names that you will know, such as uh, Jeremiah, Amos, Isaiah. A lot of them take place during the period set in this book. So keep up with your notes on this. If, if you need a copy of the handouts that we provide, that's available on our website at highlonbaptistchurch.org, so you can print those out yourself. But uh, as we continue through this study, it's important that you keep these notes because chronologically speaking, the book of 2 Kings takes place at the exact same time as a lot of the books of the other prophets. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we get into it. But we're focusing today particularly on the ministry of Elisha. Now we'll be taking uh, chapters 1 through 8, covering that in this session. And as you can tell, there's a lot to it. But before we get any further, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we delve into your word, we ask that you would prepare our hearts that it might receive fertile ground, that with, within us... Uh, Lord, that you would begin the work of revival, that you would begin the work of renewal, that you would give us the energy and the understanding to better grasp who you are to us. Not just that you are God, but the definition of holiness, the definition of righteousness, the definition of, of how we are to reflect you before others. So use this time to cleanse our hearts as we lift them up to you. Give us both an ear to hear in a mind open to understanding your word, no matter its challenge. For these things we ask in the most holy name of Christ. Amen. Just to uh, get us started, Elisha was, a, was the prophet who was the direct successor of Elijah, who we talked about in the last session. His name literally translates to either, my God is salvation, or God is my salvation. Um, he is a prophet that is originally from the city of Abel-Meholeth. I believe that I tried to pronounce that right. Um, please do not tell any of my rabbinic friends that I talk this way. He became the leader after Elijah of the sons of the prophets. That's the Israeli prophetic school. Now, it might surprise us to understand that just as we have seminaries today to train pastors... In those days, they had a discipleship system referred to as the sons of the prophet, where they would gather together, and these people who were ordained by God to carry his message would learn how to do that faithfully, how to walk in their deepening connection with God. Uh, they would learn in community together the law of God. They would commit it to themselves, kind of in the same way that the priesthood did, and they would also learn how to write this stuff down. It was uh, about literacy, and not only was it about literacy, it was also about 
prophetic writing, which takes the form in your scriptures as poetry. Now, in English, it doesn't rhyme. And even in the, in the Hebrew way of things, the rhyme doesn't happen with word sounds the way that it does in our language, but in ideas. And we'll talk about that more later on. But the idea of this school was to train them in the art of exposing God's word, of understanding God's word, of deepening their connecting relationship with the Holy Spirit, and being in community and fellowship with each other. This is an early predecessor of the rabbinic end of things, uh, where you had professional teachers who would go, who would attract students and disciple them through the course of a number of years, the same way that Jesus did. In fact, if you think about it, I want you to pay attention to this study to the relationship between Elijah, the forerunner, and Elisha, the successor, because that pattern keeps replicating in God's Word, particularly because we know that Elijah was an early prophetic echo or foreshadowing of the person who would become John the Baptist. So pay attention to Elisha, to his ministry, to his words, and to the miracles associated with them, the miracles that God performed through him. So we talked a little bit about the miracles of Elijah in the last session in 1 uh, Kings. Here are, here are his recorded miracles, or the miracles that God performed through him, I should say, in the book of 2 Kings. There was his, prof his prophecy on the death of King Ahaziah of Israel, calling fire down upon a hundred soldiers in all, but two sets of 50. There was a second parting of the Jordan River. Remember, uh, Joshua parted, well, God parted the Jordan River through Joshua and through the Ark of the Covenant, but now we read that Elijah parts it a second time. He reveals that, yes, through, through this uh, request, that Elisha would actually receive a double portion of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that later. And, of course, there is his transposition into heaven with the chariots of fire and the whirlwind. Altogether, the demonstrations of God's power performed through this prophet total 14. Now, there are, of course, miracles associated through Elisha, in which we see a third parting of the Jordan River. We see the purification of the waters of Jericho, the jeering children who are mauled by bears. I don't want to include that as a... Well, it's, I'll just put it this way. It's important uh, to give people who come in the name of the Lord proper respect. I'm not saying that anyone's going to get mauled by a bear in this day and age, but still the lesson is there. Uh, there's the filling of, the, of a desert valley with water. There's the valley of blood that comes off of the same miracle. Filling of innumerable vessels with oil that is, is sold off by a, a widow woman to prevent the selling of her sons into, um, into slavery. There's the prophecy of a Shunammite woman who gives birth to a son who had previously been barren. There's the resurrection of that same son. The cleansing of a poison stew during a time of famine uh, in Gilgal. There's the multiplying of bread. Understand and listen to these different exhibitions of God's power. Because we've already heard of resurrection, now we're hearing 
of the multiplication of loaves of barley bread. Where have we as church people heard that one before? This is a prophetic foreshadowing of the coming of our Savior. But let's go on. There's the healing of Naaman, the cleansing of him through leprosy. There's another one. The revealing of, of a servant's fraud and cursing that servant for his fraud with Naaman's leprosy. There's a floating axe head incident where a bunch of the, the sons of the prophet under Elisha have grown to the point that they can no longer meet in his house to have their lesson time. So they go out to build a new one. And one of the sons of the prophet is, is, is chopping down wood with an axe and the axe head flies off of his uh, handle and lands in a body of water. And he's fretting because it had been borrowed and it's expensive. It's a solid piece of iron. So Elisha throws a stick into the water and the axe head all of a sudden floats to the surface. There's a warning of a Syrian ambush of marauders that come to invade Israel. There's a, a vision of heaven's armies. This book is loaded with visions of, of heaven's armies, particularly the chariots and horses of fire. The restoring of the blinding of an entire Syrian army, the restoration of sight to that Syrian army, a conquest that happened without, as we would say, without firing a shot. The prophecy of an end of, to the famine in Samaria, the prophecy that a noblewoman would not partake of, of or a nobleman, rather, a, a, um, an officer in the king's court would not partake of the abundance that was to come. Uh, the Syrians hearing the sounds of the chariots and being scared away from Samaria. The prophecy of a seven-year famine. The prophecy of the death of Ben-Hadad, the king over Assyria. The prophecy of Haziel, the coming king's cruelty. The prophecy of Jehu that comes to end Ahab's line. The prophecy of the victory against Syria. Uh, Syria being defeated by Israel but not conquered. And a strange miracle that happens when a body is being placed in a tomb next to the bones of Elisha and the body comes back to life. It gets resurrection, uh, resurrected just by being in that proximity to the prophet's bones. The demonstrations of God's power performed through the prophet Elisha are 28. Counting prophecies among the miracles, which I do, because a prophecy, a fulfilled prophecy, um, is a display of God's power. So there were 14 in Elijah's case, and now there's double that in Elisha's case. And notice that they're both multiples of seven, that being prophetic as, as a sign of holiness or a sign of completion. Um, and it's important to know when I talk about these patterns with numbers that no one takes that to mean that there's a certain mysticism, a certain magic within God's word. There are no magic powers here. What numbers in the Bible signify? where certain numbers occur in the pages of God's Word, there's usually a lesson or there's usually some kind of thematic development that takes place alongside those numbers. And the number seven has the dual meaning of completion or perfection and holiness. I find that interesting, but let's move on. It's important to know that while we're talking through the book of the Kings, that Kings focuses mostly, at least in terms of its volume of wording, it focuses mostly from the Northern Kingdom's perspective. Now, it does talk about the Southern Kingdom, but very briefly in comparison. 
Something else that's interesting is that even though it's called the book of First and Second Kings, a lot of its pages, a lot of its words, its verbiage is dedicated not to the kings, but to the prophets who were in ministry during the reign. For instance, we're talking about Elisha right now. Elisha is actually the main character from chapter 2 to chapter 13. So this book could rightly actually be called, this section of it anyway, could be called the Acts of the Prophet Elisha. So again, this is the situation of the divided kingdom. And we begin in chapter 1 with the judgment against King Ahaziah, who remember, Ahaziah was the son of of Ahab, who had recently died from an arrow wound. It is reported that he only reigns in Samaria for a period of two years. And during that time, Moab revolts, Moab being a vassal state of Israel at this time, just as Edom at this time is a vassal state of Judah, the southern kingdom. Moab goes into revolt. Ahaziah, uh, during this time, at the same time, actually falls through some lattice work that was on his roof. He, he is carried to a sickbed and he says words to the prophets of Beelzebub, uh, who is the primary god in the city of Ekron. And of course, this gets God's attention and not in a very good way. So Elijah is called to pronounce judgment against the king. Are there no gods in Israel that you, ha- that you feel that you have to go before a fake god, a god made out of stone, to receive information? to get guidance and assurance. So the prophet meets the king's messengers along the road and delivers that message. Are there no gods in Israel? And you will not come forth out of your bed. He gives the messengers the death pronouncement from God. And after that happens, soldiers are then sent to arrest the prophet Elijah. So one troop of 50 soldiers comes down and the captain doesn't treat the prophet very well. So God calls down fire on that 50 troop detail, if you will. A second one tries the same thing. He insults the prophet. The prophet calls down fire and it consumes all 50 of them. And a third captain, kind of realizing that something is up here, I better treat this guy with more respect, bows before and reverences himself before the prophet And it's only then that the prophet goes to visit the king in Samaria. And he tells the king the same story that he told the messengers. Are there no gods in Israel? Is there no God, singular, in Israel that you had to go to a false god? You will never leave your bed. And sure enough, King Ahaziah dies. And his younger brother, Joram, becomes the king over Israel. Now, you should note this. That uh, at this point in time, King Joram of Israel comes into power. Soon hereafter, another king named Joram will come up and will rise and take power in Judah. He's the son of the current King Jehoshaphat that we met in the last session. So you need to keep in mind that at the same time, this is where things can get confusing. For those of you taking uh, the Bible through the year, through a chronological Bible or through a chronological uh, Bible in a year type of reading... Be sure when the Bible says Jehoram of Israel or Jehoram of Judah or Jehoah's son of Jehoshaphat because this can get confusing. Pay particular attention. Now, unfortunately, we get to the end of Elijah's ministry. And Elijah had been promised by God that Elisha would be his successor, that Elijah would be allowed to rest finally and would be rewarded for his faithfulness. 
So Elisha promises again and again and again that I will follow you to the end. Even when Elijah says, stay here, Elisha says, no, I will follow you. They go to Bethel. And a bunch of the sons of the prophets in Bethel come out and say, do you know that your master is leaving you? And Elisha basically says, yeah, shut up. I'm following him all the way. Same thing happens at Jericho. A bunch, 50 sons of the prophet come out. We've been to, we, have, we have seen, we know that Elijah is leaving you this day. He says, yes, be, keep your peace, be quiet. I'm following him to the end. And he tells his master that. So they walk to the Jordan River. Elijah rolls up his mantle. In it, some translations have it as cloak. Some have it as, as, as baldric or, or sash. But at any rate, he rolls it up and he touches it to the Jordan River and the Jordan River splits to the right and to the left as an echo of what happened in Joshua, which is itself an echo of what happened in the book of Exodus. And they walk together across into the wilderness. And Elijah offers Elisha one final favor. And Elisha very wisely asks for a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah gives him this cryptic response that if you see me again, you will receive what you ask for. And sure enough, Elijah witnesses the chariots of fire and the horses and his master departing into heaven, translated into heaven, raptured, arpazo, snatched into heaven through a whirlwind. And Elisha receives the mantle, which is the outward show of an inward change, and the Spirit of God rests upon the newly minted head of the sons of the prophet. So Elijah's mantle falls to Elisha. He becomes the chief prophet in Israel. And Elisha is in mourning because he saw the departure. He knows that he's not going to see him again in this life. And he hits the water with his mantle. And yet again, parts for the third time. First, the, the sons of the prophet come out and they demand to search for Elisha. Maybe God dropped him off at the top of a mountain somewhere. Elisha says, no, I know what's happened. It's okay. He's in the arms of God. But they go off anyway and they spend three days looking on the hillsides, looking in the mountains, and they come back and report that he's gone. And Elisha basically says, I told you he would have. So the prophets, they, they returned to the city of Jericho, and the people there complained to him that even though they have this seemingly good land, look at all the land of the city, look at this fantastic city, but the waters are toxic, the waters taste bitter, they're poisonous, and we can grow nothing with them. So Elisha takes a bull, and we presume for a sacrifice, and, and uh, uh, some salt. He adds the salt to the water, and the water becomes pure again. And then right as he's leaving, right as he's starting to walk out of the city, a bunch of children jeer at Elisha, basically saying what I'm translating as, get out of here, baldy. And they keep saying this to him. And finally, be careful what you tell the chosen of God, because in this case, Bears come out of the wilderness and maul the children and, and send them scurrying back into Jericho. So Elisha journeys to Samaria. Now we get to King Joram of Israel, who reigned for 12 years. And he, did, he wasn't as bad 
as his father, but he still maintained some of his iniquities. He removed Baal's idol from Samaria, but he continued to allow the worship of other gods. Now, one of the things that you'll see about Joram, he and Jehoshaphat kind of rub off on each other. Um, and in a way, Joram starts to, to respect Elisha. In fact, more than once he refers to him as my father. He was not free from sin, and he is not counted as a good king over Israel. But he is a better king, at least, than his father. So Moab rebelled as the vassal state. When Joram came to power, as happens many times, a new king comes to power. So the vassal state tries to test the resolve of this new king. So they gather an army together and they push against Joram and they decline to pay homage to them. And so he forms a coalition with Jehoshaphat of Judah to attack and to reclaim the territory. And he attempts to engage from the Edom desert, but along the way they discover that they don't have enough water to complete their journey. So Jehoshaphat calls for a prophet of God. And at first he goes to, they get Elisha, and Elisha says, well, why don't, he talks to, uh, to, to Joram, why don't you go to the, the prophets of your father and of your mother? He's, he's trying to stab them to say, why don't you go worship the Beals like your parents did? Were it not for Jehoshaphat, of Judah, one of the, child, the, the sons of David, I wouldn't be here right now, but for respect of his house. But Joram rejects the prophets of his parents and asks for a word from the God of Israel. So God fills the valley because of this respect. God fills the valley with pools of water and promises that God will deliver this coalition from the hand of the Moabites and will deliver them into their hands. So the Moabites see this water that's just magically appeared. There's been no rain. The water has just drifted in. The Moabites see that, the, from God's power rather, the Moabites see the water and they see it reflected in the sun as blood. And they believe that the three armies that are gathered together have turned on each other and have slaughtered each other. So they're barreling into the camp. Uh, suspecting that they're not going to really find anybody alive there to put up a resistance, but they couldn't be farther from the truth. The second that they get into camp, they're surrounded. The Israelites destroy them. And the Moabite king is so rent with worry and heartache that as these Canaanites do, he actually offers his own son, the crown prince of Moab, as a sacrifice. But Israel has laid the land of Moab waste, and Israel returns back to Samaria. Chapter 4 is filled with a bunch of, of examples of the power of God through the prophet Elisha. Uh, there is a case for a widow comes to the prophet and asks for God's help because uh, her husband who's dead is in deep debt, and the creditors are, are threatening to kidnap her children and sell them for slavery. But the prophet asks her, what do you have? And she says, I have one pot of oil. And he tells her to send your sons out to your neighbors. Get as many empty pots as you possibly can. And she fills them with oil and the oil never runs out until they get to that last pot that they've borrowed. And, and they sell that oil and they get enough not just to redeem her children and to cancel the debt, but to continue to live on. There was this prophecy that, uh, well, well, let me back up and explain. Uh, he's traveling through the area of Shunem, which is in the, the middle part of the kingdom, just south of the Sea of Galilee. 
And a wealthy family offers him house room because he's passing through there really frequently on the road. And uh, he asks, what can I do? What can God do? Who can I go on on your behalf to, to repay your kindness? And he promises her that in one year's time she would have a son. She would be holding a son. And sure enough, one year later, God provides. Unfortunately, that same son, during the harvest time, several years later, that same son grows sick during the harvest time. And the Bible records that he's saying, my head, my head. So there's a lot of commentators out there that wonder if if the child is suffering from a stroke because uh, as he's carried back, And put on a sickbed, he dies shortly thereafter. So his mother journeys on on donkey back. She journeys all the way to Mount Carmel to seek Elisha's help. I actually pronounced it right that time. So she goes to the prophet. She explains what's happened. And the prophet sends one of his own servants with her back home with his staff, with his walking stick, with instructions to lay the stick on the child's head. And when the prophet himself arrives there, he stretches himself over the the child's body three times. And the child's body becomes warm again. And he sneezes 12 times. And he comes back to life and he gives him back into the arms of his mother. The next miracle that chapter 4 holds for us is the cleansing of a poisoned stew. Now he journeys down to Gilgal where a famine has gripped this community. Nothing is growing, and he sends out uh, some of the sons of the prophet, some of his servants, to go out and let's build a stew for these people. Let's make something of whatever you can scrounge up. And one of his servants apparently finds a bunch of gourds of an unknown variety, wild vegetables. And he grabs as much as he can carry, and he comes back to camp, and they dice them up, and they put them in a stew. And the second that they taste what he's concocted, they spit it out, and they declare that it's poisonous. Apparently, it's vilely bitter. And the prophet, sensing what's going on, apparently receives a vision from God, casts some flour in, and he takes a handful of flour, throws it into the stew, and all of a sudden the stew becomes edible. And the people's hunger begins to get satisfied. A traveler also comes by, and he's only bringing about 20 uh, barley loaves. Mark this down, because this same... When we get to the loaves and the fish... From Jesus. A lot of what Jesus did had an echo in the Old Testament, and this is one of them, especially since we're talking about barley loaves. So the traveler brings in barley loaves, and Elisha tells the traveler to feed a hundred people with it, a hundred men, which means, as is the, the Bible's custom, chances are good we're talking about more than 300 people here. How am I supposed to feed such a multitude with just this? And Elisha says, not only will you feed all of them, but there will be much left over. Does that sound familiar? Now we come to the siege of Samaria. The Amorites declare war on Israel, but they don't start with an all-out war. They start by sending bands of marauders into Israeli territory to set ambushes for the king and the king's envoys and the travelers who are coming by for trade. But Elisha warns the king and the king's men of all of the uh, Arameans' plans. In fact, one of them actually says, it's almost as though the prophet can hear you when you're alone in your own bedroom. So the Arameans go and they capture Elisha, and uh, God strikes the soldiers blind. That should say, strikes the soldiers with blindness. I'm sorry about that in the notes. 
But Elisha then guides them, after they've been struck blind, to the very court of the king of Israel. And Elisha prays, and the scales fall from their eyes. Their eyes are opened, and they see what they are. They have no weapons. They're surrounded by the king's officers. The king's actually saying, Father, should we kill them? This is a, a, a king of Israel that's, that's actually treating the prophet with some respect. Now, again, he's not perfect. In fact, the, the Bible doesn't even consider him a good king. But we see that he is a significant improvement over his father. Anyway, so Elisha takes him to Samaria as prisoners. But when the king asks, should we kill them all? He says, no, treat them well. Throw a banquet for them. Don't kill your prisoners. Show them hospitality. And he does. And they're released. And they refuse to go back into Israel and do it any more harm. But when they arrive, King uh, King Ben-Hadad musters his military this time. He calls all of his army, all of his soldiers together. And he laid siege to the capital city of Samaria. And he starves them out. The Bible actually calls this period a famine. In fact, there's one episode where a woman comes to the king to complain that they've resorted to cannibalism of their own children because there's nothing else to eat and they're trying to survive. And she's complaining. The Bible does not, let me note this, the Bible does not condone this behavior. But it breaks the king's heart to hear these complaints because of the lengths of desperation that the people have gone to. So the king mourns over assistance. He rips his royal cloak. And underneath, they don't see fine linen shirts. They don't see uh, layers of royal garments. What they see is that the king, all this time under his royal robe, has been wearing burlap. He's been wearing sackcloth. The king has been a penitent hiding his devotion. Apparently, this is a sign that he's effectively been fasting all this time. He's been denying himself. One would assume that he's been denying himself in prayer, but he's apparently come to the conclusion after hearing this report that all of his works of penitential uh, worship have failed. They haven't gotten God's attention. That's what is going through his mind anyway. So the people see the king's penitence before God. And, king, and, and the king of Israel loses faith. And he goes after Elisha in revenge for God not hearing his prayers. So the soldiers arrive at Elisha's home. And Elisha prophesies there will be a season of plenty coming. He prophesies that that the basics for human living, the cost of them have gone out of control. But Elisha says no. By the time God has had an opportunity to work, by the time God has, has done his will, the cost of food will have been substantially reduced and all the living necessities of Israel, of Samaria, will be extraordinarily cheap. But the commander says, if, if, you, if God were to pour out the very storeroom of heaven itself, how would he feed all of our people? So Elisha basically responds by saying, you will be able to see this, this captain, this court official. You will see this come to pass, but you will never partake in the plenty. So the, the siege finally ends by a miraculous act of God. 
Four lepers who were staying by the gate of the city of Samaria decide within themselves that, well, if we stay here, we're going to die, but if we go to the Aramean camp, they'll take us prisoner, but if we surrender, they just might keep us alive, or they could kill us. But anything's better than just sitting here and starving to death. So they go to the Aramean camp to surrender, and they discover that it's been deserted that the Arameans have flown the coop and they have done so with, what, they've done so with such haste that their, their pack animals, their horses, their, their treasure, their weapons, their food and their supplies are still there. They've just packed up and run. Well, they didn't even pack up. They just ran. So they eat. They drink. They celebrate. They try to hoard all this treasure for themselves, but they discover, no, this is wrong. We have to go tell the king. The king hears it and doesn't believe it. He thinks that they're setting a booby trap. He, he thinks that there's something wrong. So he sits over a scouting party. And the scouting party discovered, no, it's the truth. They've abandoned. So the people in Samaria flood out of the gates. They invade the Amorite camp. They steal the food. They steal the plunder. They steal the weapons. They steal the horses. And they have a feast in the emptied camp of of the Arameans. And as they're returning back to the city, they actually trample dead the doubting officer. So Ben-Hadad, who had been causing all this trouble for Israel for all this time, the Aramean king, sends one of his servants, Heziel, who we actually heard about an anointing back in the previous session. He sends him to ask Elisha if he will recover from an illness that he has suddenly been stricken with. I want you to notice the irony here, that the kings in Israel had made a habit of seeking the prophets of other gods, foreign gods. But the foreign kings are sending envoys to hear a word from the God of Israel and from Israel's prophets. So the pagans <laughs> treat God with more reverence than a lot of the people in Israel. I find that incredibly ironic. But uh, Haziel finds Elisha, and, and Haziel has, has a, a, a pack train of animals filled with a, a lavish gifts for the prophet. And Elisha gives Haziel a message. Tell your king that he will recover, but in truth, he's still going to die. And he's going to die because you're going to murder him and take his place. And the prophet starts to weep. He starts crying bitterly. And Haziel, who considers himself a nothing in the king's service, asks, why are you crying? And Elisha says, because I know what you're going to do to Israel when you, gain, when you come to power. You're going to murder the people. You're going to kill the children. You're going to even murder the unborn. How could I do these things? He's not thinking of how can I do these evil things. He's thinking how can I do all of these wonderful military things in his own mind. Again, God's not condoning what's about to happen because we see the prophet weep and weep bitterly. He will be an instrument of judgment, but he will be an instrument of death and destruction. He will become king, but he will punish and persecute Israel severely. And he murders the king. And he assumes the throne 
over the Arameans. Anyway, the chapter 8 concludes with a couple of successions in the northern and southern kingdoms. In the northern kingdom, excuse me, in the southern kingdom, uh, Joram, the son of Jehoshaphat, who's also incidentally the grandson of Jezebel, because remember, Jezebel's daughter had married into David's family, had married Jehoshaphat. Jehoram is Jezebel's grandson. Anyway, he becomes king over Judah. And he himself marries a cousin of Ahab, one of Omri, Ahab's, Ahab's father. He marries one of his descendants, his granddaughter, I believe it was. And he follows after Ahab's example. In fact, the Bible says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but he was only rescued by the one thing, and that was God's love for the house of David, and that alone. So he reigns for eight years during a grave time of political instability with Edom. The Edomites are rebelling. Remember, up until this point in time, Edom was a vassal state of Judah, the same way that Moab had been a vassal state of Israel. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, becomes king of Judah, the southern kingdom, afterwards. And he continues the syncretic policies of his father. But he only reigned for one year's time. We'll get more into this political instability when we get into chapter 9 in our next session. As you're in discussion, remember, gather with your groups. Talk about your highlights, what challenged you, what you found interesting, what you already knew, what you didn't know beforehand. But I want you to consider along with your Bible readings these three questions. Number one, what is prophecy in today's time? Now remember, prophecy isn't fortune-telling. God sometimes uses prophecy, uses the future events, in the Old Testament anyway, and in the New, as evidence of the fact that this message is coming straight from Him. But the prophetic ministry is not about fortune-telling. That's not its primary focus. Its primary focus is telling truth to people who don't understand or don't get or are gravely disobedient to it. Prophets in the Old Testament were covenantal watchdogs, constantly reminding the priests, the kings, and the people of Israel and Judah about their responsibilities to God and about God's expectations. That was the prophetic ministry of the Old. Now we're in the New Testament time, well past the age of the apostles, what is the prophetic ministry today? Has it departed from us? Is it still with us? What form does it take? Also, what are the sources of God's mercy that you have witnessed, that you've encountered in your experience? Just as we saw with the, uh, the Shulamite woman who had been barren. Just as we saw with the widow. Has there been a person of God who carried well the name of God with them, someone who was Christian per se, that, that did, that you knew was a Christian, that was a godly person, who was also a bringer alongside God's mercy in your life. Who were they? What did God do through them to bless you? So, that uh, covers it for this evening's material. Next time we're going to be looking at 
the last segment of Elisha's ministry and into the period where Israel and Judah begin the rapid decline toward the exile period. Any questions about the material that we've covered so far? Anything from online or anything from you all? All right. Then let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again we come before you with, uh, with our hearts bowed before your throne, asking, uh, Lord, that you would make of us messengers of your comfort, messengers of your mercy, messengers of your love before others, people who desperately need that special touch of your hand and that special word that there is still yet hope in this life. So help us, Lord, to do precisely that. Help us to be bold in proclaiming your compassion as well as your truth. Bold in, in ministering unabashedly in your name. So continue to strengthen us. Continue to give us your courage. Continue to let us speak in power and authority and with knowledge. Help us act wisely and always help us to reflect you accurately before a world in desperate need of a Savior. In the most holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person. To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.